Welcome back to Seminary Unboxed, everyone. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, and I have with me today uh, Dr. Michael Bird from uh, Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Dr. Bird. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me, and hello to all of your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your, your busy teaching and administrating and writing schedule. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about your book, Trinity Without Hierarchy, Reclaiming Nicene Orthodoxy and Evangelical Theology. But just before that, uh, just let me give, for those who may not be familiar with you, a little bit of a bio. Um, Dr. Bird uh, is a leading scholar in New Testament studies and Christian theology. He is academic dean and lecturer in theology and New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, the author and editor of more than 30 books. He often speaks at conferences in Australia, the UK, and the USA. Michael, of course, is married to Naomi, and they have four children, and he runs the popular blog, Euangelion, and can be found on Twitter at, at mbird12. So once again, Dr. Bird, um, and I'm just going to call you Mike from here on out. I hope that's okay. And uh, it's, great, it, it's great to have you back. And uh, let me say that I was first introduced to you as an author through your small book on Paul. I was teaching a, a course on the uh, Pauline epistles in Haiti before coming to, uh, to Mississippi. I was uh, working and serving in Haiti um, and really enjoyed the book. Thank you for your work, your Romans commentary on the story uh, uh, collection or commentary series. Uh, by, I think it's by Zondervan, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Uh, really enjoyed that. Love the work that you've done. And and too, with N.T. Wright. And uh, just a big fan. So thanks for coming. Let me uh, just read the paragraph off the back of your book here, and then we'll jump into this, this Trinity conversation. Um, surveying scripture, church history, and theology, 16 contributors present a defense of the full and equal authority and majesty of all three members of the Trinity, while critiquing approaches that border on semi-Arianism. Readers will, readers will learn why the strong statement of the equality of the Father and Son made at the Council of Nicaea is necessary for a biblical and evangelical faith, while having significant impact on our doctrine of God and the person of Christ. While some contributors hold complementarian and some egalitarian viewpoints, all agree that gender roles are not a proper ba basis for understanding Trinitarian relationships. And so um, I have to say, just to, to get us going here, that Mike, I didn't know that you were writing or even interested on, on things related to the Trinity. And as a, a Wesleyan uh, thinker and Old Testament scholar, Trinity is something that we're constantly talking about um, because we start our theology with personhood, the personhood of Jesus, and say that's a great starting point. And then uh, this Trinity relationship and hypostasis and what that means and its impact for salvation, especially, and saying, look, there's more than just the forensic metaphor for thinking about salvation. If we kind of lend ourselves beyond that, then we can have a more robust understanding of what it means to be saved as a personal relationship. So um, I was excited to see this book come out because I'm a fan of your writing and uh, I haven't read the whole thing. I did read uh, bits of it to prepare for today. So just tell us, Mike, what's the book about? Why is it important? And uh, why should we read it? Okay. Well, uh, well, first of all, Matt, thanks for the um, for the uh, the great summary and the um, great accolades. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really a pleasure and honor to be here with you and with all of your, your listeners. Okay, well, here, here's the story, okay? Back in about the late 70s and 80s, uh, people began to think of Trinitarian relationships, like between the Father and Son, as a kind of a good guide 
for male-female relationships, you know, in marriage between a husband and a wife. And people point out, look, you know, uh, the son, at least in his incarnation or maybe forever, you know, submits and obeys his father. And human beings were in the image of God and the image of God can be, be very relational. So one aspect of the image of God is that women should submit to husbands in the same way that Christ submits to the father. And that is a way of displaying the image of God. And that was kind of like a minor view that kind of got bandied around. But gradually it became more and more prevalent to the point that a you know male domination or you know patriarchy or uh, male headship was said to be rooted not merely in say a reading of Ephesians 5 or 1 Timothy 2 but it was said to be rooted in the very nature of God and so if you denied male headship in marriage you were not just you know uh, succumbing to an egalitarian culture you were in fact you know tinkering with with the very nature of God and how it should be reflected in human relationships, particularly in marriage. So that, that's kind of what was being promoted in, in, in certain circles, particularly conservative or reformed evangelical circles. Uh, that people began to notice a, a, a few sort of problems with that. And they said, you know, when you start talking about the son being subordinated to the father and the wife subordinated to the husbands, maybe those are two separate conversations that don't belong together. And even then, even then, you know, if you're going to start emphasizing the subordination of the son, you're kind of floating a bit with Arianism because Arian, Arius, the fourth century Libyan um, presbyter, I mean, he was all about the son as insubordinated to the father and inferior to the father, more like a kind of uber angel. Um, a kind of created heavenly being who is divine, but not divine in the same way as the father. And that's, of course, what the big fourth century debates were about. Now, I, I was a, a little bit sympathetic to this, uh, this movement, which, which was called eternal functional subordination. So the son is, they would say, uh, eternal, and he's equal to God in deity, but he has a different role and a role that entails subordination, okay? And, and that's why it's fitting for him. Now, I, I was a little bit um, sympathetic at first uh, because, you know, the son does obey the father and the relationship between the father and son we in, in, in the incarnation does reflect something of the eternal relationship between father and son. There's all sorts of... Um, theological reasons for that I won't go into and the other thing was you know these these EFS people the eternal function subordinations that they were not like full-blown Arianism they were not saying that Christ is a created being they were not saying that Christ is a, a lesser angelic entity so they weren't full-blown Arians and I, I could kind of see where they were coming from but there were two things that always bugged me about them one the language of subordination means you're flirting with Arianism now, I, I just assume that they were they, they used that language, but they didn't really mean it. Okay, so they, they were using the term, but they, they weren't accepting all of its corollaries and implications, or they weren't using it in a complete Aryan sense. The second thing I had a problem with was applying, you know, the father-son relationship to marriage always struck me as a little bit weird because it, it sounds to me more like you're taking your view of what you think marriage should be and projecting that back into the Trinity. 
And I, th I think that's very problematic. So you're really turning the Trinity into an image of your own kind of ideal marital relationship. And even that, I think, is is problematic with what people mean by male authority. That, that can be very, very problematic, very, very bad if you think in terms of abuse and domestic violence, that kind of a thing. But later on, someone pointed out to me that some of these EFS uh, proponents, eternal function subordination, were also language talking about the father's greater glory or the father's majesty. And, and some were even saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't pray directly to Jesus. We should pray to the father through Jesus and in the spirit. And then when I had a look at a bit more of church history and I saw that there, it was not just the Arians, but there was a whole bunch of semi-Arians from 325 to 381. There was a spectrum of different types of Arianism um, who weren't saying that the son was an angelic creature, but they were saying things that sounded a lot like eternal functional subordination, emphasizing his obedience, being very allergic to the language of the father generating the son, that type of a thing. And then I came to see that there was some strong analogies between EFS, eternal functional subordination, and not pure Arianism, like from the 320s, but more like the semi-Arianism of the 350s that you find in documents like what's called the Blasphemy of Sirmium. You know, um, go Google that one and you'll, and you'll see that. And that's when I began thinking, whoa, this, this really is uh, a bit of an issue. It, it, it's, it's turning, it's no longer a trinity. It's more like a triarchy, you know, with, with tiers or levels of authority. And I teamed up with my good friend and colleague, Scott Harrow, and we thought, well, why don't we get together some of the top class contributors around the world get people, you know, from different theological perspectives, you know, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, from all parts of the world, you know, with different views about gender and ministry and, and, and relationships, but who are nonetheless united in a commitment to classical Christian theism, you know, who can, who can say the, the creeds and really mean them and are committed to that great tradition of evangelical thought uh, in, in the best sense of the term and that classical sense of the Trinity that's been the very bedrock of Christian faith for the last, well, you have to say at least 1700 years. And so we went out and we kind of uh, recruited uh, all these wonderful people and we got the result of a great and I think a fantastic collection of essays looking at the Bible, looking at historical theology, looking at contemporary theology. So that's that's the, uh, that's the volume that we are discussing, Trinity Without Hierarchy. Wow, what a, what a great, quick and concise summary of a, of a complex issue that's related to so many different things. You know, you've got exegetical components here. You have church history components here of creeds and councils. You have heresy, so systematic theology. Um, and so... Uh, so in terms of, let me, let me just ask a couple of questions, if I, if I may, Mike, uh, in terms of the subordination language, what is the right way? So when we talk about Jesus as the monogenes, the Greek yep. phrase for only begotten or one of a kind, I love to hear, um, you know, your, your take on the best translation of that word and that the spirit proceeds from or eternally generate or originates, spirates from the father. Yep and the son, if subordination, that, S, that bad S word, is it bad? 
What's the yep. best way for us to talk about this? And so I guess the bottom line is, what is the nature of the relationship, if not hierarchy? What's the, how, how can we change our rhetoric to be more classically Christian? Yeah, I mean, the way we distinguish the three persons is not by roles of authority and submission. I think that's, that's, that's the number one thing. That is very, very bad because you may not be doing pure Arianism, but you're certainly flirting with it. Okay, so I think so. The idea that you're going to use authority and submission as the way to distinguish the persons is fundamentally rejected. And it's really rejected in somewhere like the fifth century Athanasian Creed, um, where they where it basically says, and, uh, you know, statements like anyone who believes that the son is lesser in authority and majesty and power, you know, let him be anathema, you know, uh, let him or her be. I mean, they use strong language sure, to do that. Sure, yeah. So the, the way we distinguish the persons, and, and again, this we, we do distinguish the persons because it's not like you've got day, you know, you've got you've got one deity with person A, person B, person C. So that they're not just three random deities, they are identified as father and son and spirit, and they have different roles in the triune economy of how God acts. But the, the way we distinguish them is principally through their relations of origin, okay. So we call the son the uh, sorry, call the father the unbegotten father. Okay, so and and he is in some language people will dispute this. But he would he would say he is the source of the divinity uh, of the of the of the son and the spirit. That doesn't mean that they are a lesser divinity, but they 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 uh, some theologian would would call the father autotheos, God in himself, and he communicates his divinity to the son and and the spirit. Now, again, within the church fathers and the reformers, there's a little bit of debate about that, how that works out, but but, but bear with me. So you've got the father who is the the unbegotten one, and then you've got what we call the eternally begotten son. Now, um, in the ancient world, they could distinguish uh, gods who were uh, eternal and who are begotten. So using the language of begotten does sound a bit like one of those created uh, temporal newly made deities. Like, you know, Hercules does his various feats and then he gets, uh, he gets to become, you know, a God kind of a thing. Um, no, the, the Christian said, no, he is eternally begotten. So yes, he derives from the father, but eternally so. And that's got a few implications because it means God was always a father. He never became a father, okay? He was always the father. And if he was always the father, then you have to have a son. You can't be a father without the son, and you can't be a son without the father. So yes, the the son is kind of an extension or an eternal relationship with the father, but it's eternal, and that's that's the point. So you've got that. And then you have the Holy Spirit, who, and in the language of, of uh, John's gospel, we could say that he's spirated or he's um, he proceeds from the father. And then we can have a little bit of a debate whether he proceeds from the father and the son as well, because the spirit is the spirit is in a relationship both with the father and with the son. And our Greek Orthodox and Catholic friends will have a big argy bargy, uh, as we say in Australia, a big argy bargy about that topic. But for the time being, let's let's just say the spirit proceeds from the father and is in a and receives from the son that that might be another uh, that's that's kind of hedging our bets and, and doing it that way so but that means you know this way of viewing it 
means you're not dealing with roles of authority and submission. So you've got those eternal relations of origin. And then the next thing you do is you then look at the economy of creation and redemption. And you'll see that the father is the creator, but he creates in, co in cooperation and with um, the spirit and in, in and with and by the son. And then we see similar things happening in what we would call the economy of redemption. You know, how salvation happens from God through uh, the son and is activated or actualized by the spirit. And what we see is, uh, in some sense, you know, their, their own actions. We call the father the creator. We call the son the redeemer. We call the spirit the renewer. But even then, those operations are done inseparably from one another. Okay, so the son is not the redeemer without being sent by the father and the redemption that the son does cannot be done without the Holy Spirit who applies the work of redemption to the believer. So even though they have their specific roles in the economy of creation and redemption, they're never done independently of each other. Okay, and so there is a tri-unity even in, the, in, in what we would call creation and redemption, if you like. So, so that, in a nutshell, I believe is, is, is the proper way to distinguish the persons rather than using the language of authority and submission. That, that's super helpful. And, man, this opens up a whole spectrum of more questions. You know, what is, what is fatherness with an eternal begotten son? And what, what exactly, when we talk about the father's relationship with the son, and fatherness and sonship, what exactly are we talking about? Now, again, I, I want to move past a couple, couple more questions that I think come out of this. One question I want to ask is with regard to perichoreses, mutual yeah. indwelling, hypostasis, being is communion. So when we as believers self-affirm a relationship with Jesus and enter into a perichoresis mutual indwelling. I, you know, we will be in you as I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But, and then you said earlier, so I'm, I'm taking that piece of we enter into the self-affirmed relationship with the Trinity, which to me is what salvation is, like yep. an ecclesial birth or this, this new birth. Um, yet the Father almost divinizes the other two persons of the Trinity, if, if that, that, that godness, I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. So how do we say that we enter into that relationship yet we don't become divinized? Does that make sense as believers? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the issue of the father being the source of the divinity of the son and the spirit. I mean, it is a bit controversial. It depends if you go with someone like origin who says the father is alto theos God in himself. Uh, and then Calvin, who says, oh, they're all autotheos. The father's autotheos, the son's autotheos, the spirit's autotheosis. And so, so, well, that runs the danger of tritheism because you then you have three centers of divinity. Uh, you have those sorts of disputes uh, going on going on there. Uh, what, I, what I think is uh, important to stress is there, you know, what's very big in the New Testament, both in Paul, Paul's epistles and in the Gospel of John, is the sense of our participation in our participation in God and the life of God. Okay. But, you know, we have to remember, you know, the, this language of, you know, of, of becoming divine. I mean, the, the technical term is theosis, you know, sharing in, in the divinity. I mean, that's, 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 that's in, you find that language in second Peter, you could say it's implied a lot in union with Christ and the indwelling of the spirit. But we have to remember, we don't, 
become divine if you know for Lisa, i'm doing the bunny ears with my fingers here for those who who can't see uh we don't become divine uh in the same way in which jesus or the spirit is divine so there's not that kind of communication of divinity uh what, what when the church you know, spoke of you know becoming divine saying things like you know christ became human so we could become so humans could become god and that's the language you find in like irenaeus and you find in athanasius and, and other places the problem was what did they mean by becoming divine now most said like you don't everyone agreed you don't become divine like you know god okay but you become the divine in the sense of you know participating in immortality okay both at the vitalizing power of the spirit and then experiencing eternal life and some would say you also participate in uh the divine character so there could could even be an ethical sense in becoming divine you you, you engage in the imitation of god to use the language of ephesians 5 1 but what it means to become divine is is controversial in the eastern tradition the greek tradition I think they would say we participate in the energies of God, not in his essence. Whereas Calvin, someone like John Calvin would say we participate in Christ's glorified humanity, but not absolutely in his divinity. So even within the, 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 the church uh, ancient and the, the reformed churches, there was a little bit of dispute as to what it meant to, you know, become divine, to be made partakers of the divine nature. Super helpful. Thank you. So I, because of time, I have a couple more non sequiturs here, just more questions that I think link up to what we're discussing. Um, I'm assuming that you're familiar with Michael Heiser's work on the unseen realm. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I think I was interviewed by him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, well, there you go. So, uh, you know, he's making the argument, John 3.16, that monogenes doesn't come from ganao, but rather ganas, and that the better translation for that term is not only begotten, but one of a kind. Does that... Oh, yeah. Does that do damage to what we're talking about in terms of uh, trinity, hierarchy, personhood, etc.? Yeah, this this has been a bit of a modern debate about the meaning of that phrase, uh, whether you take it in the sense of being one of a genus, one of a kind, or does it have that kind of the, the language of begettingness? Now, the, the begettingness language has always bugged certain people. Now, I mean, you see this particularly, you know, in Islam. Uh, in Islam, the key creeds of Islam, God does not beget and is not begotten. So the language of God's only begotten son uh, is a little bit problematic because begetting normally implies kind of like, you know, a, a sexual union of some kind. So, so people have always recognized that that kind of language could be problematic. Are you saying that God has sexual relations and, you know, the Holy Spirit is his sperm and he impregnates Mary or something like that? I mean, you know, people have found this language problematic but again the church fathers are, are clear on this they say look you know, we, we don't mean begetting in the literal sexual sense that the reason they use this language of begetting is to say what the father is the son is or to quote america's um number one leading catholic theologian stephen colbert the son of a duck is a duck that, that is what the purpose of the begetting language in is. So when we say Jesus is divine, we mean Jesus is divine just like his father because the divine apple does not forefar, forefar, 
the divine apple does not fall far from the divine tree. So he's not like a different kind of divinity. He's not a lesser divinity, not a subordinated divinity, not a miniature divinity, not an almost divinity, not a quasi divinity, not a kind of maybe one day if he tries real hard divinity, he's divine in the same way as the father because he's eternally begotten of the father. Okay. So it just means he's made of the same stuff. Uh, now, some people, uh, again, some biblical scholars, well-intentioned, maybe they're a little bit allergic to the language of begottenness, again, because of its connotations of biology and sexual union, or maybe they're just um, like doing stuff with, you know, dictionaries and lexicons. because that's what biblical scholars do. That's what biblical scholars do. So, uh, yeah, with full respect to um, Michael Heiser, who was a fantastic scholar and researcher, he really does do some great stuff, his books and his podcasts. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to stick to the term only begotten on this uh, because I, I think that's that's what's being implied. He's of the same he's of the same nature as the father. I don't think it's talk, talking purely about his uh, u, uh, uniqueness as being a one of a kind. I, again, I appreciate how people do that, but that's not where I would go. I should say there is a, a really good article on this, so you can find it online. I think it was the Gospel Coalition. I think it was by um, I think Charles Irons. I may have I may have that wrong. I may have that wrong. But there was a great article on this very topic about you know the language of begottenness. But maybe this is one of those areas where you know, people who study ancient Greek and people who study ancient theology um, just come to a little bit of a, a disagreement. But uh, yeah, I'm going to champion the only begotten rather than one of a kind. Yeah. And, and one of the major critiques that I've come across, I, I particularly like Michael Heiser's work too, um, especially as an Old Testament scholar and what I run in, it's just quality research. Yeah. Um, one of the major critiques though, is this idea of naked Bible. I'm also doing the, the, the finger quote bunny ears for those who can't see us, the naked Bible podcast, the idea of, well, this is what the Bible says, regardless of what's been handed to us through tradition. Well, we can't just simply set aside the tradition aspect. There's a great danger in that and that we trust that the Holy Spirit inspired the passing down and the formulations of the definitive declarations of our creeds and councils and all those things. So, but moving past that, a couple more questions. So um, one question that I have, uh, two, two more questions in particular, um, the Holy Spirit. So I'm teaching a course on the Holy Spirit now. I'm drafting a chapter for a collective systematic theology on pneumatology now. What is the great implication, the most important thing to that, that this uh, awareness of Trinity without hierarchy has particularly on the Holy Spirit and how we tend to think and talk about the Holy Spirit as contemporary Christians. If you were to say to a group of lay people or even people in seminary studying to be pastors, look, this has, we, we talk and think about the Holy Spirit this way, but when we really look at this Trinity without hierarchy stuff, there's a corrective here. So what correctives do we have or, or what should we be thinking about specifically regarding the Holy Spirit? Oh, oh boy. Yeah. A lot of stuff, man. Um, yeah. Talking to students and people in churches about the Holy spirit, it can, it can be, to be honest, it can be almost traumatic. Um, what some people think of the Holy spirit as kind of God's own fog machine. Okay. He's just there to provide the, the, the heavenly ambience or else the Holy spirit is kind of like Jesus's own vapor trail. Okay. Well, that's or a good in, yeah, that's the, the exhaust I, coming out of the exhaust pipe of, of yeah Jesus's vapor trail, um, or another sense, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the force from Star Wars, and right. 
the, the biggest thing you have to stress is the Holy Spirit is not a force, not the buzz, not the vibe, not the kind of warm feeling in your belly after the church potluck. That's probably too much chilies in the stew, I'm guessing. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit is a person. Okay. Um, you know, you know, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can grieve a person. You cannot grieve a rock. Okay. You cannot grieve something impersonal. We know the Holy Spirit um, um, speaks in the first person through the prophet Agabus in Acts 13. I have set apart Paul and Barnabas for yes. this ministry. So, right. so I think you've got to emphasize the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force or a buzz. And then you have to point out the Holy Spirit is fully divine. Okay. In the same way, the son is fully divine with the father. So the spirit is fully divine with the father and with the son. Okay. So th th that's two of the big things I think you've got to stress in your, in your doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And then I think you've also got to stress that the Holy Spirit's uh, primary role is to apply the work of salvation to uh, of Christ to us. So it is it is the spirit that unites us to Christ and applies his benefits to us. Now, Matt, I know you might be traumatized by this because I saw you cheering, but that is a very <laughs> now th this, this 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 may sound dirty speaking to a Methodist. But that is a very Calvinistic thing to believe. <laughs> okay. That the Holy Spirit uh, applies the work of Christ. That, uh, to be honest, I would argue that that, rather than predestination, is Calvin's big contribution. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that someday. Yeah. Well, uh, what I love, I love messing with my students in so many ways. Um, and I ask them, which book of the Institutes does Calvin discuss the Holy Spirit? You know, is it book one, book two, book three, book four? And we kind of have a guess and, and they say book one, book two, before I say no. And they said, but there's only four books in the Institutes. I go, no, he doesn't actually have a section on the Holy Spirit. Um, what he does have, he infuses his whole work with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And that's why B.B. Warfield, famous Princeton theologian, called John Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Calvin's, I think, big deal was it's, it's not the sacramental system of the medieval church. It's the spirit that applies the work of Christ to the believer. Right. Okay. Sure. And in the play, in the in the place where people thought, you know, the medieval church is what puts you in, in union with Christ. Uh, Calvin say, no, that's the work of the spirit. Now, Calvin himself did have a high did have a high view of the church. Um, you know, he, he, he could say you can't have Christ. God is your father and Christ is your brother without the church as your mother. But his big his big idea for my mind is his 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 um, how he uses the Holy Spirit to unite us with Christ and and even becomes our participation in the divine nature in some sense. So if I wanted to emphasize the Holy Spirit in a you know new systematics uh, volume or something, I'd be majoring on what the Holy Spirit isn't. And I'm saying he is divine. He is a divine person and the application of the work of Christ to the believer. Super. And um, so in, this is actually a follow-up question before the final question. Of the of the, the church fathers, you know, you've been living in this material uh, for a while here, and um, which, which works on the Holy Spirit would you recommend if, if listeners go, I want to read Basil, or I want to read, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus, or Nyssa, yeah. or Athanasius? Who would you recommend? Start here. This is a really great start. Oh, yeah, there's there's one of the letters of Athanasius, uh, where I think it's the number one letter where he talks about the Holy Spirit. Top of my head, um, I can't remember what it is. I'm looking uh, it up. But it's it's one of his letters. 
uh, which is his his. I mean, he he focuses Athanasius was more into the father son relationship. Is it Serapion? The letter to Serapion. Yes, that's yeah. Serapion. That's right. The letter to Serapion, where that's where he does a lot on the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, in the ancient church, you can't go past uh, Basil's on the Holy Spirit. Um, that that I think is probably the number one work in 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 the uh, ancient church on the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, you know. I mean, he gets appointed bishop in an area and then he starts doing all this liturgy where we worship the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, we don't worship the Holy Spirit. And he goes, well, this bishop does. Let me explain (laughs) why. Let me explain why. And he does everything. He says, look, the same language to, through and by that gets applied to the Father and the Son is also applied to the Holy Spirit. You know, he goes through all the sort of same arguments that, you know, the Spirit is divine. The Spirit is a a person. And it's probably one of the best defenses um, of the uh of the, the divinity of the holy spirit in, in the ancient churches you can find because remember tr- that the holy spirit debates kind of took a back seat because the church first had to figure out the father-son relationship so the, right. the 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 issues of the holy spirit tended to develop you know a lot later in the late fourth and and then fifth century yeah so one thing that i'm keen on is you know there, there's always new books coming out you know the writing of the writing of books there is no end and, you know, new theology books and Christian life and living. And I'm always encouraging folks to get back and read the church fathers because there's just tremendous and it's free. <laughs> it's all online. You don't have to pay a dime for it. So, all right. Last last question, Mike. And I almost don't want to stick you with this question, but I kind of feel like I have to. What would you say to someone who would come along? And I'm not this person, by the way, for what it's worth. Yeah. Say, look, there. this is a bunch of academics who don't take the Bible seriously, who are writing this book because they have an egalitarian view of, of, of uh, you know, uh, male-female relationship, and they're just trying to break down the plain meaning of, of the text. Um, what would your response to that be? And Yeah, I, I'll let you take it from there. Well, the first thing I would say is we had complementarian authors contributing to this book for whom their understanding of, of male-female relationships and their understanding of, you know, senior pastors being male or that type of thing, uh, that's based on a particular reading of the New Testament passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5. And they say, look, we can we can have all that without this kind of crazy, quirky, semi-Aryan reading of the Trinity. OK, so that, that's the number one thing that I could say. I mean, you don't have to be a kind of ultra left wing tree hugging, you know, gender neutral professor at <laughs> Yale in right. order to, to agree with what I'm saying. We've got some very conservative people who have pushed on this. And in fact, I have to say, the real kickback on this began with a, a wonderful lady, a good friend of mine called Amy Bird, um, who, who was pushing back on that and was told to kind of, you know, zip it and go back to the kitchen. So she got a couple of very conservative um, uh, Presbyterian pastors with, you know, PhDs on theology, and she kind of released the Presbyterian hounds um, as it were, and in, and in her wake, there was nothing left but debris. Um, so, um, yeah, that the, the message of that story is don't don't mess with Presbyterian housewives. Um, <laughs> um, she calls herself the housewife theologian, by the way, just just so you know, just so you know. That's great. Um, yeah, and the, the biggest problem um, with, with the view, though, is you know don't don't. <laughs> don't treat the trinity as the the mirror of your favorite relationships and a a lot of a lot of people tend to do this it's called the social trinitarians where you know i believe in egalitarian society so i'm going to oppose that on the trinity well i believe in a hierarchical um church so i'm going to impose that on the trinity you know uh, don't treat the trinity as the place to get your ideal community 
validated. Uh, because yeah. if you try to do that, you're always going to be in, ending up with some kind of heresy or subordinating the, 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 the Trinity to your favorite kind of um, political or church arrangement. Well, and, and, and Mike, I would add to that, the same is true with, of exegesis in our hermeneutic, you know, and not doing that to the scriptures as well, mm. um, which, which we could say a lot about. So uh, Mike Bird with us today, thank you so much. I, I found this to be immensely fruitful and encouraging and refreshing. And you have a gift, uh, Mike, for making this content accessible and putting it in plain language, but being casual and conversational. And, and I, I can hear you and even in your writing. And so just know that you're in our prayers and that we're thinking of you and are very thankful uh, for the work that you've done, your calling and, and for Ridley College and uh, keep at it. And if there's anything we do to support you beyond prayer, you know, don't hesitate. We, you have allies here across the pond, you know, in North America. And uh, we have quite a few students from, from other parts of the world at WBS. As well. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Michael Bird, Trinity Without Hierarchy, Hierarchy Reclaiming Nicene Orthodoxy and Evangelical Theology. You can find that on Amazon and other bookstores. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Mike Bird. We hope to have you back uh, before too long. No, no, thank you, Matt. And thank you to all your listeners. All right, y'all. Until next time. <laughs>